E-commerce isn't just an aspect of growing a successful wine business, it is crucial. And that's why I strongly recommend working with Offset Partners. As a proudly independent e-commerce technology and brand design company based in wine country, Offset understands the operational nuances and the customer service imperatives that distinguish a great online buying experience from a mediocre one. And that's why leading and legendary brands like Saxum, Arnott Roberts, and Kermit Lynch Wine Merchant choose Offset's proprietary commerce technology platform to power their DTC sales. If you're an allocated winery or a high-touch merchant that values an elegant, effective commerce solution for both you, your customers, and your team, reach out to the smart team at offsetpartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T, partners with an S, dot com, to craft a better direct-to-consumer experience. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Antonio Massanita of Fita Preta, Massanita Vino, and also... Azure Wine Company. Hello, sir. How are you? Hello. How are you? Nice to see you. <laughs> nice to see you. <laughs> I know you were born in Lisbon, but you spent some childhood time on the islands, right? Yeah. My mother is from Alentejo, so from the south. My father is from the Azores. They met in Lisbon. So I, was, I always lived there, but our vacation place that we spent, you know, two to three months when we could is the Azores. The Azores is actually a group of islands. Yeah. So someone asked, an amazing question the other day was, is this new world or old world? So this idea that it's one third of the way to the Americas, so it's the same latitude as Lisbon and New York. So it's the beginning of the discovery. So it belongs to Portugal, so it's a Portuguese territory, but it has a completely different dynamic volcanic islands. Traditionally, there was winemaking in Azor. Yep. If we go to 1852, before powdery mildium, before phylloxera, uh, Madeira was producing 400,000 liters, and the Azores 10 million. So just to give a bit of a scale, it was an industry. It was uh, something that was happening. And what kind of wine was that? That's uh, an amazing question, uh, because I think even Madeira wine, what kind of wine was Madeira wine? Because when you see in the books, you read it, and they're saying, you know, kind of like a Rhenish French wine, but without the sprit. So it has nothing to do with the style we know today. So in the books, they talk about the sac, S-A-C-K, and I only found it later that sac was seco for Portuguese, means dry. So they had the dries, and uh, they had the sweets. So then what you have is reports of historians that, uh, you know, they go in 17th century, 18th century. And what you get is, I think that if I would resume, you'd have the dries, okay? So they're the less expensive whites, wines, and then you have... Uh, see my sweet, the people say it's somewhere between a sherry and a malmsey. So the malmsey, the thicker Madeiras. And so I think the two styles would be this, a dry wine, that it's from the year, not aged, bottled early, and a more concentrated, sweeter profile. Mostly white grapes, or what would it have been? A little bit like, again, this idea of Madeira, what the little bit of red you had was normally to give color to whites. It was fashion at the time was this golden profile of aged wine. So the reds were to tint a little bit the whites. So that's interesting that the production would have been so high before phylloxera, because a lot of times when you think about places like Rioja or other places in the world, what was happening is that people were trying to find a substitute for French wines during the French phylloxera crisis. But this actually precedes that. I think we had two things happening at the same time. So phylloxera was in, impacting but we also had powdery mildium in 54, so 1854. And that was in an environment like the Azores, that it's 80% humidity. It rains every day. Like the reporting was that all vineyards were just gray, gray, gray. And so 1852 were 10 million liters. And then 1859, only seven years after, it's 25,000. It was destroyed. It disappeared. People abandoned if you look at the log ship of boats, they shift from wine to sperm whale oil. So it's the beginning of the whale industry in the Azores. If you look at population, they lost half of the population to the Americas or Brazil or 
to a Y. So the descendants of Azorians that exist in the Americas, they're almost all connected to a huge immigration phase that is linked to this Philoxeta period. It's a group of nine islands, right? Yep. And which ones would have been making wine at that time? Did all the islands make wine? Or? Yeah. All the islands made wine, but uh, let's say that the Pico Island, and that's where we, we have most of our vineyards, would be the exporting island. So there's always been two dimensions, wines to export and wines to drink. There's two ideas. Same with Port, same with Madeira. And so the wines to export were Pico wines, you know, more concentrated, you know, more aging potential. And there would be the wines to drink. The wines to drink, they are lower alcohol, they're lighter. And um, so Pico was the, at the time was called Fayal, actually, because the island in front is where the port is. And so like port wine that actually is not produced in Porto, but it's produced in Doro, same thing would be Fayal wines because you don't have a good port in Pico to get to big ships on. Uh, Pico has uh, had at its maximum 6,000 hectares of vineyards. So we're talking about vineyards that are, they start uh, straight on the coast, but average they're 50 meters away from the ocean, up to 200 meters. The island is very, very young. It's 300,000 years old, compared to São Miguel that is 5 million years old, and Canary Islands that it's 25 million years old. So it's a very, very young, it's a baby. What does it mean to be a baby? It's that the soil is not degraded. It's still mother rock. So how did they plant it? They broke the mother rock and planted in the cracks of the lava rock to access what was in between eruptions. So you have a lava flow, creates a plague. Then you have a little bit of sedimentation. It rains a lot, so you get organic matter. Basically, the vineyards are using these little bits of organic matter in between lava eruptions. So Pico had, has this dimension. Also, it has this huge mountain in the back, 2,350 meters. So we're in the middle of the ocean, this huge volcano mountain in the back that has this amazing role to block, grab the clouds there. So basically, the clouds are all in the mountain and very close to the ocean. They say the best vineyards where you can hear the crab singing. You're out of the clouds. And in the Fajange, means the lower areas, you have a little bit of sun. Pico, you have a bigger area out of the sun. So that's why you could get riper profile of, of wine. So Pico ended up being the worst place to live because you can't do cows, you can't do corn, even there's lack of water. Uh, it was the best place to produce fruit, produce wine. Historically, these wines are somewhere between dries and fortified but all destroyed in 1850s. So in 2010, you started a project on Pico. Yep. And you started revitalizing vineyards. And what did you find at that time? And also, even going a little bit back, an opportunity came to teach in a school in uh, San Miguel in 2007 or eight, Which is a different island. Yeah, it's where my father's from. And I was just curious all the time, you know, trying to find what's going on in the islands and uh, what's the type of wines we can do, you know. And I, I stumbled on this project, actually introduced by my uncle, that is an agronomist on the island. He said, oh, this is grape called Terrantes do Pico, that it's almost extinct and they're trying to recover it. And I just went and checked it. And uh, the girl that was uh, the winemaker responsible for this project, she did an amazing job getting all this 89 plants left into an amazing muscle clone program. So those were spread across the island or? Could only found it in Pico, and in the existing hundred and something hectares, they can only find eighty nine plants. So it was about to disappear, and they did an amazing job with this. And she told me, you know, maybe there's a reason why people left it because you can't do great wine with it. And I was like, this sounds like a challenge. <laughs> and so I launched a program with them, you know, a protocol to do wine with this grape variety. And uh, so this was two thousand and ten. And I, I didn't know, I just wanted to do something with Yazers. You know, it's my, where my father's from, and I just want to get involved, you know. I was already involved with the school. I was so happy, you know, teaching on food and wine pairing, you know, just getting involved with where my origins are. And I did it with this responsibility. I was not going to try to make it something. I was letting it be, you know. Clean winemaking, taking care of just the basics, you know. Fruit had to be healthy, 
sorted well. Just the basics of the equipment is just getting everything clean and neat and uh, protecting from oxidations. Cooling, I just brought, because we didn't have cooling strong enough, I was getting ice from the market. A guy was delivering ice every day and we would put it on the tank that was cooling the others. So just going this basics of, uh, you know, health of fruit, use of cold. And the result was amazing. You know, just the first one, I was like, what? Briny, fresh, crisp. You're like, I think we all look for this. You, we wine people. You know, we talk a lot about terroir, but a lot of times it's hard to feel it, to taste it. These wines are so clear on where they come from that I was like, ah. So this was the beginning, 2010. And then I moved. I was invited to go to Pico Island to do uh, a workshop, so to speak, with the producers. And um, the person that invited me said, you know, can you do a marketing workshop? I was like, sorry, <laughs> I beg your pardon. <laughs> he said, no, if it's winemaking, no one will come. Because <laughs> people already know how to do wine. So if, you, <laughs> if it's winemaking, no one will come. So I went and... Um, it was a little bit resistant, you know, this idea of who touched my cheese, you know, so what is this guy from a, outside, from the mainland, doing in Pico, teaching us how to do wine. But in the end, it was, you know, a good vibe, you know, we tasted a lot of stuff. I asked people to bring what they had in the house, and, and this is, was the seeds of three projects. So what did they have in the house? I think, for me, what I was looking for was, number one, historically, what was the style of fortifies that existed? I was looking for this. And I think the most interesting was actually a gentleman on his 70s that he had bought a, two barrels 30 years ago. And he actually just wanted the barrel, not the wine. But the person that sold him had wine inside, and he kept it. And a level of complexity, a deepness, that I was like, oh, okay, this has potential, this island has potential to do amazing fortified wines. What was the island like in terms of the vineyard? So there's about 100 hectare yep. vineyard when you yep. got there? When I arrived, yeah. And so how is that spread out? Is that like all over the place? Very or? concentrated. This was part of this program. I think they did an amazing job. You know, if we kind of go back and say, you know, 1850 was this nightmare, 1854, 7, and then they started replanting hybrids to compensate so that people could actually do a living. And then 1950s, they created a co-op. So this is government create a co-op to make sure that the Vitis Vinifera would remain. And so I think what's important is that they managed to keep it safe, alive, up till today. Uh, in 2004, it was made UNESCO, UNESCO Heritage. So that was important to make sure that a block of vineyards wouldn't disappear. So the 100, let's say the 120 hectares, historic, they're in one place, almost all concentrated. And is that old vines today? or Yeah. So those 120 uh, old vines. So I was with this idea that I did this education and I wanted to do like, I need to know more about these varieties. I need to do a genetic project and uh, I need to do an history project. What's true and what's hocus pocus. And third, I wanted to do like this. Um, I thought I can change this region with just like free consultancy hours that people could use. And actually I, I didn't get a positive feedback. Only one producer said, yeah, it's for free, right? <laughs> and so that's the producer that I did my first wine in Pico with. So we just said, let's just do a wine together. And actually, that's the beginning of this name, Azores Wine Company. And from a, a trial, became actually a wine project with other partners. And it became a little bit more ambitious, you know, just saying, you know, we did a wine, then we did a Rintu. A Rintu is a source that is a different grape from the Rintu of the mainland. How is it different? So I like to think that all of us were the result of this migrations of populations. We're a mix of, of people, you know, our parents and our grandparents. And same with grapes. And so what we know today from our genetic project is that Verdelho, the mother grape, uh, back in the days it was actually called Vinho Verdelho, is very likely to have been born in the Azores. Genetically, is the descendant of Savagnin. And the reason why we say this is because Verdelio has never been found in the mainland. And uh, the Verdelio of the mainland is actually Goveio, that is the same as Godelio. And uh, we share this grape both with Madeira, the, where it's better known, 
and there's a little bit in the Canary Islands. So what we understood is that these three groups of islands, Macaronesia, so Madeira, Azores, and uh, Canary Islands, mainly Tenerife, they, they shared a lot of grapes. So the question is, from where to where? You know, in the old books, you see Listan Branco in Madeira. So the grape of Canaries was there, the Boal that changes from all the islands. So it's the route. So you do Canarian, Madeira, Azores, Americas, like a highway, like a road. So what we saw is that 200 years before any time someone said Verdalho in Madeira, it was already said in the Azores. So the two grapes called Arinto dos Azores and Terrantes do Pico, different from Terrantes do Dão, Terrantes, all the other Terrantes, they're actually descendants of Verdalho. I see. So there's a genetic link of these three grape varieties that exist in the Azores. Whereas when you compare the genetics of Verdalho with the Madeira ones, they're actually, it's an alien. It's not part of that genetic pool. And so it indicates that it's likely taken there after. Also, something that I think it's really interesting is this idea that Madeira is half the way of Portugal, so half the distance. So Madeira's grapes are almost all from the mainland. And what's really curious is that none of the grapes of these three grapes is from the mainland. So it's really too far away that it became something else. So something else with a lot of Portuguese, Flemish, French, Dutch, different genetic pool of people, different genetic pool of grapes. So a name like Betancourt, that it's very French, it's very common in the Azores. So Arinto dos Azores, that we did in 2013, Pure, crisp. Terrantes is more on the briny, uh, rich on the palate. And here is, you have the same touches of, uh, you know, where it comes from, but more like tense, you know, more like, like a guitar. You do, it's like rigid. And originally those would have been blended together, like in the yeah. 1850s? Everyone calls it just verdalho, you know, it's just, I would say this idea of kind of separating it into varietals, it was more us testing, again, what's the potential of the scripts individually. I, I suspect, I can't say it for sure, but I suspect that the name Arintus Azores is very recent. It was just been reinvented because it was called Arintu Pico. The people in Terceira, there's another island saying, no, you can't call it Arintu Pico because also from, it's Trantes da Terceira. So, you know, so the, the name Arintus Azores was kind of to please everyone. How many grapes are we talking about on the island? The main grapes that people know today are three. Verdelho, that we say Verdalho, the original Verdalho, uh, Arinto dos Açores, and Terrantes do Pico. So there's three grapes. Verdalho is a more, more perfumed, more aromatic, but also with good acidity. And Arinto dos Açores, the more tense, you know, the acidity, and Terrantes, the more briny, and then when it's young, very floral. Um, the Arinto dos Açores kind of took over Pico because it's, I suspect that its name in the past was Verdalho Valente, Brave Verdalho, Valiant Verdalho. Why? Because it resists more in the vineyards. So it's more resistant to rot. So people with old vineyards, they would graft on the grapes they were producing more, they were holding more. So little by little, the rentes disappeared. Little by little, Verdalho is pushed to a corner. So you keep the grape that works the best. And so only in 2014, we just gained courage. That's where we founded Azores Wine Company. And so we launched ourselves in planting 30 hectares, recovering 30 hectares of this rock wall vineyards. So the outlay of the vineyard still remained, but there wasn't a vineyard there. Yeah, yeah. Infestants took over, you know, trees. and uh, But in between, it's like you feel like you're walking into a ruin. So it's underneath all the vegetation. When you get in, it's there underneath. I like this idea of function, you know, I, it was made UNESCO, it had this beautiful vision, but like, where are the wines, you know, just internally, it's not as well received from other producers, by farmers is very well received. Our impact was that grapes were at 70 cents, and now they're almost at five euros. But there's been a huge scope of replanting on Pico, right? Yeah, but for people to be motivated on replanting, I, there's two dimensions that need to happen, that had to happen. I think one is that it's a business. So before they were getting paid 70 cents and it was not business. So the more you plant, the more you lose. 
And most of the people actually did it because their parents did it. It was, you know, everyone did a little bit of wine. You know, the first event that I did with single grapes, people, everyone could distinct them. You know, people that haven't studied, haven't been in the school, grab the wine. Oh, this is the Arint for sure. This is the Verdad for sure. Because they know the grapes. They taste the grapes. So that was really powerful. It means that it's in their blood. It's in their culture. It's in their language. So I think, number one, grapes needed to go up. And they went from 70 to 2 euros, 2 euros, 70, 3 euros. And we had some being bought at 5 euros last year. So that makes, wow. You know, and people, once I crossed with a farmer and he said, Thank you. So how did that work? He leaned out of his Mercedes and said, thank you? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, even when I do the mats, I'm not sure it's worth it still for them with that price. You know, it's just... There's a lot of rain, right? A lot of rain. You know, if if you get a storm, a dry storm, as we call it, and we had this in 2015, a dry storm, what it does is burns the flowers. So a dry storm is you have atomized salt in the air from the pounding of the waves and the wind just puts the salt on the, the vineyards. And if it doesn't rain, it doesn't wash it out. It burns everything. So you have that, or you have too much rain, or you have a storm. It's like every year is something. So it's like, you really need to be into it. <laughs> and it, it needs to pay off. It needs to generate inner wealth. And so I think this is one of the dimensions. The second is, yes, we can. We did the first vineyard of 30 hectares, and people were like, where are this crazy people doing there's 120 actors planters they're going to plant 30 and from there we're talking 2014 up to now the increase of areas from 120 to around 900 so 800 actors total were planted that's uh, pretty amazing that's amazing so if we grab this 800 actors they're probably divided by 300 people planting so what's the planting look like today it's basically trellis close to the floor and they're going to be pruned guillot, but close to the floor. So it's a terrible microclimate for diseases, and, but they need to be there so they don't get salt spray. So they need to be close to the floor. Close to the ground. Close to the ground, yeah. So that's kind of how it's done. And all the new vineyards, they're recoveries of this type of vineyard. And it has a huge influence because if you have vineyards close to the floor, your average temperature is completely different if you were doing upper. There's no comparison. So it means you have maybe during the day, you know, five degrees more because it's getting hit by the sun directly into basalt. So your vineyards are just maturating faster. We are in a cool climate, cool to moderate climate. We're in New York latitude in the middle of the ocean and it rains 1,200 millimeters a year. So it's raining all the time. So the challenge is to get it right. Not when we think islands and we think Madeira, we think Canary Islands, they're somewhere in Africa. They have sun, they have warm. Their challenge is acidity. Our challenge is actually managing to get it right. So are daytime and nighttime temperatures somewhat similar in Pico or are they very different? Very similar. It's really Atlantic. So maybe, you know, five degrees difference. What's a typical harvest date these days? Except for one vineyard, it would be mid-September. Uh, the beginning. So I say one vineyard because it's a hundred plus vineyard that we have. It's far away from the mountains. So it's the 15th of August. It's in almost one month before all of the others. Would that have been the same kind of harvest date that you would have seen in the 1850s? I have the, only the conversation of the old peoples and also the method change, you know, so we are dominantly on this fresh, crisp wine. So we're not waiting for grapes to be riper, but what people talk is end September to beginning of October. So that's the, kind of for Portugal in general, but for Pico as well. Are the grape plantings today of those three grape varieties, or what's dominant in the plantings? Yeah, it's mostly that. But because of our genetic project, we found Saburinho. Saburinho is the uh, same as Tinta Negra in Madeira. Different than Negra Mol. Sometimes people confuse the two. I didn't know there was a difference. Yeah. So it's Tinta Negra. And so we're planting a little bit of that. There's another grape that I think no one knows that existed, but planted only there, Malvarisco. And so we're excited about that. We haven't tried it. So Saburinho, I've done some wines with it, and it's crazy. You know, it's a, a Beaujolais. We're planting that. There was a little bit of a 
we called Alicante Branco, that you find also in Madeira and Boal. And so it kind of proves this idea that islands changed grapes between them. What was the initial reception for your wines in the market? We knew that it was not to be done in the Azores, like the launching of these wines. It's going to this cycles, patterns of palate. And I would say that the Azores is 15 years ago. Producers trying to feed this demand of people want the white wines more alcoholic. So just they were completely counter cycle. And then if you just say, you know, presented to somebody in Lisbon or Belgium or in New York or Montreal, and you're like, wow, <laughs> this is beautiful. And I love this idea that, you know, the world changed and now we're in the front. So meaning like this type of regions and stayed true to themselves. They are what they are. The world went oaked whites and then went, uh, and it's back on purity and the region never changed. So it's there. So we're lucky to be on this moment of the world that this wines fit on the palate. And is there interest in indigenous grape varieties within Portugal? Because Portugal has like 350 indigenous grape varieties, something like that? Yeah, yeah. I think there's a huge interest. So I think from all these grapes, maybe 20 I explored, uh, planted significantly. I think everyone feels that there's a huge uh, value on this uh, genetic heritage of grapes. I would say more and more we see people trying out these grapes, and there's a lot of work because you can't get it from a, a nursery. You need to find it in the vineyard, you need to graft it, it might come with virus. I do my wines, but I also consult other projects, and it's very hard to convince clients. And after the first year, they're a little bit disappointed. You know, half didn't grow. and The vine didn't take. Yeah, didn't take, or it has virus, it doesn't produce. So you need to do the process. If you're just trying to do it to start producing, then it's not going to do it with these grapes. You also make wine in other parts of Portugal. Yep. You have projects in the Alentejo, for instance. You make wine in Mafra, which is outside of Lisbon. Yeah. And then you make wine in Aduro, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I arrived to Portugal in 2004, eager to do something. And uh, I had two little problems is I didn't know enough about vineyards. Literally, I had to study viticulture, but I would look at vineyards and I said, like, I have no idea if this is a good vineyard or a bad vineyard or how to, like the basic, you know, how am I going to get good fruit? And second, no money to do it. So I had done my business plans of, vineyard not and winery not you know this is too much money to be able to do it luckily i uh, on a lunch i met david booth a viticulturist super nice guy and i was on uh you know i was kind of on approving myself phase provocative and he said you know what do you think he just explained he was a consultant and i said oh very well uh, he said what do you think it's the problem with the industry viticulture and i said consultants he's like okay you really know how to <laughs> Make an early connection with people. Yes. <laughs> and he said, you know, he kind of smiled. And uh, and he said, you know, yeah, I've done some mistakes. and uh, But then the more you done mistakes, the more you learn. Really, just relax. He said, so what do you want to do? And I said, I want to be a consultant. <laughs> Ow. He said, okay. And he says, okay, what can I do for you? Really cool. Like, just after all that provocative, he said, you know, I understood you're, you're full of bite to do something. I said, I know nothing about viticulture. I would love to know more. And uh, I would love to kind of shadow you if possible. And, uh, he said, okay, call me Monday. And we did that. And I did that for five, six months. A lot of amazing talks because he was not only a viticulture, but just a business guy, visionary, you know, just always like a thinker. So I launched the challenge, you know, after five months together. Let's do a wine together. And he initially said no. And uh, then uh, I'd say a week, two weeks after, we were having a beer. And he said, you know, Antonio, you're on the machine gun phase. You can shoot all you want. If you get it, you get it. You'll have a lot of bullets. You know, I'm 45, 46. I'm on the rifle phase. Five, six bullets in my hand. And I need to be very wise how I'm going to use them. You know, I have two kids. And he said, this is a shot I want to take. So we started there. Fita Preta starts there in 2004. You guys teamed up for Fita Preta. Yeah. This idea of... Uh, a winemaker viticulture doing a project together so he helped me find out good vineyards for it so in 2004 we did our first wine called preta means black and uh, i would say fairly badly received by portuguese critics why do you think that was i don't know looking back i don't know if it's uh, just a small country or if it 
generally didn't like it. I don't know, honestly, I don't know. But it kind of hit me because I had no, there was like my first wine, I was so, you know, I put all my effort, me, like family, you know, how did I get the money? My uncle from the Azores lent me 10,000 euros, then my father 10, my mother 5, you know, just really FFF, friends, fools, and family, just putting money in to make this dream happen. And so a lot of effort, a lot of care, a lot of involvement of everyone. And I was really happy with the result. I was lucky with the harvest. 2004 was amazing. And the wine was beautiful, uh, I thought. And it was super badly received. I was like, you know, two days I was just at home trying to manage it, you know, like trying to be stronger than this. David's like taking one of the bullets out of his rifle. <laughs> He's like, I, I think we... He is cool, you know. It's always, you know, when people have more experience and uh, they're just, they're taking it, you know, I'm like, ah. But it's a big region, right? It goes from the Atlantic Ocean to the middle part of Portugal. So where were you guys in that mix? You land in Lisbon, and then we're going to drive 100 miles inland. That's roughly where we are. So close to Évora. So here, the, everything changes. So there's these two dimensions that define Portugal regions. You have continental in the back, and you have ocean in the front. And it's a cold ocean. It's between 14 and 17 Celsius, I don't know, Fahrenheit's 40 and 45 maybe. And so it's cold. It's a little freezer there. But then it's a very, very narrow country. So the latitude changes a lot, top to bottom. So again, higher in latitude, colder and warm. So it gives you a lot of patterns of weather. So if you're up north, close to Spain, in the ocean, so you have the cold influence of the ocean and high latitude, and then you have Vinho Verde. Acid, fresh, crisp. Then you come down inland, you come down as, as far as possible, and because it's ocean also in the south, you need to go in a little bit from the west, and you're in Alentejo, so would say the warmest of Portugal. Uh, like this French expression called gorge de soleil, means full of sun, you know, and the wines are full of sun. Uh, the big challenge is balance. It's easy to get sun, the challenge is to get balance. So we've moved from 1,200 millimeters of rain to 300, 300 to 500. So a lot less rain, easy to get ripe, challenge to get just about ripe. <laughs> and you say that because you're trying to make a fresher style of wine, right? We are in the warm region. That's kind of why I focus this idea. And I think every region, terroir, if it's warm, then it should be a warm wine because it's a warm place. And so I think it should smell like it comes from a place with sun. But then balance is a different story. You know, this balance between alcohol and acidity. So I don't think it should smell like something that comes from a cooler climate. I don't think it should feel like something that comes from a cool climate. It should smell exactly like if we're blind tasting, we're saying, you know, this has to have a lot of sun. But at the same time, well, super balanced, it's fresh. And not every wine needs to taste like Burgundy. And what a pleasure it is that each region tastes like itself. You know, I want richness with freshness. And I want this uh, balance between the two things. You worked for a few years in California. And I feel like there's a similar question there. It's a warmer area, but how are we going to keep the freshness? Or what is balance? I mean, these topics kind of come up there as well, yeah, right? Yeah, of course. One of the, I think, more enriching experience was Napa because Napa has this uh, amazing mix of science, knowledge, really open to the rest of the world. I tasted a lot of wines from Europe when I was in Napa. So there's a certain humbleness of uh, looking to the rest of the world and admiring the rest of the world. And I like this counter idea of arrogance to try to do better. Uh, personally, I think there's a lot of styles that are too too much. It's not my style, but it's something I appreciate, is uh, this amount of precision, this amount like men putting all its effort just to do this beautiful piece. And you feel it. You feel it. You feel that wines have a lot of effort, a lot of precision, a lot of, you know, they've moved into detail of detail of detail, and there's this amount of micro details that now are in each wine. And I would say that my winemaking is today almost the opposite. I like structure, about sanity of grapes, about almost ripe, you know, getting the fruit in the right moment. But then I like things to flow a little bit. I have my idea of the wines I want to do, but every year I'm saying, oh, maybe this happens. It's a really this uh, philosophy 
behind it? Is it the best wine, the wine that you've made your most effort to be exactly like that? You're programming something that is related to nature, related to a cycle, related to what's happening in the winery, related to something that can change in that day. So structure is good, but I think if you're looking for a certain soul, layers, then you need to take your hand off a little bit, or it doesn't show. Like, just chill out. <laughs> just, just relax. Let's see. The fermentation is going a little bit off. Let's see where it's going. Let's see where it's going. Might be better. And who has followed me, you know, this in this uh, my my beginning to now knows that I was obsessed of getting it right, and now it's more obsessed about the structure has to be right. You know how we're working the vineyards, how we're working in the winery, how every person in the winery needs to taste wines, needs to be looking to this fermentation, saying, "Oh, my, this Antonio, I think this is getting reduced." And uh, so there's a lot more. Just more flow, you know, things are happening as they're happening. And so and I think wines then show this, should show, uh, have a mix of intention, intention, something we wanted to do, and something that actually happened and that gave it some layers. What do you think was kind of a key in making that transition for you? How did you move from one mindset to another? Uh, first, I think the first mindset was really related to a lot of weight in my shoulders of... You know, I had this amount of money and it had to work. This pressure of having to work. And then you pass a certain phase, it's working, and and uh, you relax a little bit. I want to do it, I want to dig in. I don't accept everything that people think that should be. You know, good question would be, you know, what is Alentejo? You know, are they like this? Are they should be like that? You know, was this how they were done back in the days? And so this is my internal trips all the time. So what do you think the answer is? Because it seems like a fairly big region, several different grape varieties, made white, made red. It's a lot of things, but I think if I would try to grab some common ideas, is it is a warm climate. So we can get ripeness, we can get warmth. A uh, lot of indigenous grape varietals, Aragonese, Alicante, Trincadeira, Castellão. But at the same time, it's a little bit new worldish in terms of region. So a lot of grapes came, you know, Syrahs and Cabernets and but uh, I think the common thread for reds, they're warm, they're luscious. And then there's tones, you know, more balanced, more fat, you know, just to... And then on whites, in whites, generally there's too much hand, I think, in my opinion. Our grape varieties, they're very subtle. And uh, generally, a lot of wines are too aromatic for where they came from. So a lot of effort, so to speak. That's kind of my counter movement on this idea, just less you know i wanted to make it as it is you know and then someone says i, I think it's a little bit shy it is it is and so it's a little bit uh, it should be more maybe it should but it's not <laughs> so if you were to give a synopsis of how the alentejo has changed as a wine region over time i mean what would that history look like in the alentejo always wine of consumption again wines to nurture the village so to speak so It'd be around the villages, it wouldn't be to trade off, because it's not a, amazing roots. You need ports. You don't mean vine roots, you mean roots out of there. Yeah. The wine out of yeah. the export. André Julien, he writes, we're 1816, Parisian wine connoisseur, and he writes about Alentejos. I've heard that they're really good. I heard they're good wines. And so it's always been known to have good wines, but not on a productive scale. And then we had dictatorship for 1930 to 1970, and the political vision for the Alentejo was to produce cereals, to be, say, the barn house of Portugal. In the 1950s, they started the co-ops, co-ops generally, not just for wine, for everything. And it's with the entrance in the EU, we're saying 85, that there's subsidies for replanting. Alentejo was the average area of vineyards are much bigger than the rest of the country. So 30 hectare, 40 hectare, 50 hectare vineyards, very common. And there's 300, 400 hectare vineyards. So it became more of like a true industry. And from there, a lot of different styles of wines, but mostly this big reds. You mentioned Alicante Boucher before, and it's sort of known as a place where there is a lot of Alicante Boucher, right? 
Yeah. It was planted all over France, all over Spain, and uh, in the Americas, from what I know, it was almost 50% of the grapes in California. And little by little, was kind of outcast for being too productive, uh, too green. So when the regulation started from region to region, it was not part of the authorized grapes. The story says that there was the Reynolds that brought it in the 1900s to the Alentejo, but the reality is that it ended up there. And I would say that it's the first place where it was regarded, looked at, like an exceptional grape. You need to work it. It's a grape that wants to produce a lot, so you need to crop thin it. It's a very vigorous grape. It wants to grow, and we are in a very dry land, rustic environment. And so... Where in Bordeaux, you were getting low alcohol wines, very colored, uh, green. Here we're getting the alcohol, but there's acidity to Alicante. I love this grape. I think it's a very interesting. It's a compensator for all the other grapes. I'd say that the others are more the soul. They have layers, you know, Trincadeira, Ragnes, Moreto, Castellão. And this kind of takes their flaws out. So I co-ferment generally with Alicante. 15, 20% of Alicante. So how do you go about doing that? I mean, is it typical to use a whole cluster for Alicante Boucher? or Normally, no, because the cluster of Alicante is a little bit on the green side. But there's a lot of different approaches of winemaking, of course. But uh, we hand harvest everything. We start picking at 3 or 4 in the morning. It's amazing. At 7 in the morning, fruit is coming in the winery. So I don't use pumps. Pumps don't touch fruit. And so grapes arrive. We're going to sort them, destem them. And I'm just going to pop them. So you do crushing? I crush. Uh, I want to keep the structure of the berry, but I want to open the berry. So I don't want carbonic maceration, but I want that the structure remains intact. It's this idea if you had like a month to do a coffee. If you're in the morning, you're trying to do your coffee, and uh, if you grind all the beans, you pass your water, and you say, ah, oh, a little bit too strong, a little bit too... And I like this idea that if you had a month to do it, you just put it soaking the whole beans, and you're tasting, mm, I like the color, it's getting a little bit of bitter, but I like it, and uh, 20 days after you say, no, that's out, perfect coffee. And I like this idea of control. A lot of people that come in here to speak about infusion rather than extraction. Yeah. I think this is the idea of generating less solids, so if you generate less solids, you lose less. So if you generate a lot of solids, when they precipitate, they take a lot of stuff with them. So number one, they bring some stuff other type of aromas. But the other thing is this mechanisms of absorption, distortion. In the end, like you take your wine out, you'll see that all that lees, they took a lot of color with them. They took a lot of aromas with them. And so if you generate less solids, in reality, you're leaving more in the solution. So there's more precision of fruit when you're not shredding the skins, when you're not generating as much solids. I guess the reason that you wouldn't pump then is because you're probably looking for more harmony. When I worked in both Maryvale and uh, Brother State, I kind of grabbed this idea. But if I travel to, to Darenberg, it's not the same idea. So their idea is the opposite. They're saying, okay, no, I'm going to crush this, and I want to get the most extraction in very short term. And it's not very different if you think port, you know, how it's done, you know, and you get a fast extraction while you have a bad solvent, while there's not enough alcohol. You're mechanically extracting, instead of this idea of a long infusion, you're saying, I'm just going to take as much as possible while I still don't have alcohol. Because as soon as I have alcohol, I can take a lot of bad stuff, so to speak, so more herbaceous aromas, reactive tendons. So both of the philosophies are, are fair. The second philosophy is actually more intelligent because you can turn tanks more. And I have places that I have to do, you know, use lagars and use foot treading. Which would be an example of that, right? Yeah. Going for a lot of extraction when you're using foot treading. You're kind of taking as much as you can in the beginning, and then you, you do less in the end. It's a little bit of a confusing moment for the mass, you know, just everything is blurry. And uh, I think I grabbed on to one of the techniques more than the other. You know, you visit a top producer and uh, Dori will be selling you exactly the opposite story. And it's great wine, so I think both of them work. What I would say that it brings to my wines is, I think, this idea of very light, precise fruit. Like, the fruit is very fresh. 
what's a typical alcohol for a wine that you're maybe co-fermenting those different grape varieties? Alentejo, if you're in reds, you're always between 15 and 14, generally. This is like the average for what's normal in Alentejo. Then if you shift, you know, I have a wine of Castellão, that it's a grape that has later ripening. You can get perfect ripeness at 13. I have a baga of sol, so I planted baga that is from Bayrada. It's like planting uh, Nebbiolo in Tuscany, something like that. It's, I think, 13.5, 14, and it's balanced. So I think with reds, it's this. With whites, I, I've learned. So in the beginning, I was a little bit unhappy with the richness. You know, it's easy to get rich, but still is low in acidity, and I was trying to work around it. How can I do whites that I like? I was, you know, around this with my head. And I was already working, trying to harvest, for example, Anton Vaz, that it's our main grape in Alentejo. It's our flagship grape of Alentejo. Productive, like ripening, you know, it's, it suits well Alentejo. Fairly neutral. I was harvesting it, you know, with 10% alcohol with 12 and then 14, trying to get the fruit. And, and it was working, but I felt a little bit like bending it, you know, just felt unnatural, like this idea of bending a region, making it look like something else. In 2007, I stumbled across a vineyard. Actually, David stumbled across a vineyard. And uh, it was co-planted. It was a field blend. I was like, crap. <laughs> this, this was invented, right? It was planted to make a wine as a co-ferment. Yeah. So the idea was it's not about the best ripeness of each grape. It's about the best ripeness of the group. So you need fruit, you need freshness. So you need the group to perform. And so you're helpless. As a winemaker, you like if you weren't to do the best ripeness for each one, you can't. You need to compromise. And so I learned, you know, back in the days, you know, if you look at things from the 1800s, the whites from Melendez were very known. So, you know, it's like whites. You know. And uh, here's the solution. You know, you just uh, have all these grapes. They're not tuned in in terms of ripeness. And you just focus on getting that group in. You're 12.5, bring it in. So I started doing this. And it's amazing, you know, you have the texture of the region. Some of the grapes are getting ripe, and then you have the acidity of others. So there's a, a little idea here that needs to follow this, because if you have a green fruit, green fruit is green fruit. And so what's my step after? It means that I'm working on whole bunch pressing. So I need to work it, you know, it's just about the skins. And I need to separate first and second pressing. So I want to get just the juice off. This idea of the whole bunch pressing, uh, we go back to breakfast, this idea of an orange juice. If you're doing an orange juice, let's, by squeezing it against, so it generates a lot of pulp, a lot of skin contribution. So if you do it with your hand, like shredding it, you're going to get a little bit more of bitterness. And if you just cut the orange and start squeezing it little, drop by drop, you just get juice. And so there's less contribution. And so we're using that second way so especially trying to get the juice off. And I thought, again, I'm reinventing the wheel. This. So I'm looking at some books from the 1500s, and the way they did the whites was they would put it in, inside of bags. Like in a lagar, same as reds, they would put it in this uh, foot treading place. But they would put the whites inside of these nets, of bags that are little nets, to squeeze it with their food so that only the juice would come out. So it's a kind of a whole bunch pressing from the medieval... <laughs> A big, big question people say, nah, so why didn't they keep doing it? It's a lot more work. What do you do about mallow in both white and red? Do you let it progress or do you block it? Or You know, it's all over. You know, I'm, uh, for example, I have uh, three cuvées in, in Alentejo that kind of all come from the same origin. So it's 60 barrels that ferment, you know, 30% is new oak and the rest is, uh, you know, up to 10 years, 12 years oak. And I have this idea that, you know, again, 30% is about precision. I want it to go from A to B. So a, a little part, there's control. The rest, it's sliding. Some fermentations take a year. Some fermented very quickly. Some did a little bit of malolactic. Some didn't. And I think the idea after is what is our role? Our role was to control the process, so to speak, kind of uh, you know, like a parent. Not too much, not too little. You want it to be itself, but at the same time, you want it to stay in line. <laughs> and in the end, it's really about blending. 
you know, I like this four barrels. They really go well with this three. And, and a lot of people said, so what is going to happen next year? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. But it tends to be very, this entropy tends to find its uh, low energy level. So actually, this confusion, either if it's grapes mixed in the vineyard, either if it's several fermentations, this is 60 different fermentations that ended up in three wines, and they will give a, a consistent result of their anarchy of style from year to year. So in terms of wine, it seems like there's a lot riding on the Alentejo for Portugal as a whole, yep. because it's such a big part of Portuguese wine in yep. terms of what's going on there. And so where do you see that going in the next 5, 10, 25 years? What's going to happen? The challenge is, uh, what is Alentejo? This is, for me, I think this is my biggest mantra when I, I sit with other producers is, it's very hard to explain what it is. You know, I was trying to get this idea of location and warmth and and I think between us, what I would love to see happening is a certain coherence, so to speak. It can't be like a fake coherence. It needs to be this thinking in a certain direction that I think it's happening. And I think most of the producers are sensible to, one, balance, second, the indigenous grape varietals. And I think it's, it's really fun that the Lentejo can do Syrah and Cabernet, but I think it should be a side should be aside the the rest it's planted it works great you know let's keep it but at the same time just to get it a little bit more clear of where we stand and i think the opposite challenges in the duro where people know it for something but there's actually more diversity than often they recognize or how do you see it i would say that doru has uh, done an incredible job of managing to pass clearly the message of what is the style of wines and so at least people know where they stand Ed consulted there before in 2006 and seven, but then my sister was really taking on the projects there. And uh, we decided to start doing wines in 2011 together. And our positioning there is completely different because there is not Doru, but Dorus, several. There's a lot of Dorus. Uh, so if you're closer to the ocean, it's going to be fresher. If you're more inland, it's going to be much warmer. If you're closer to the river, it's much warmer. If you're upper in the hill, then you have the sloping, so it's mountain viticulture. You know, at the beginning we started, we did the 11, 12, 13, 14, and it's just, we're, we're just doing wine. I think me and my sister, like one day we just sat and it's like, we're not having fun, we're not doing wines. It's kind of, either we really change this or we just stop. And I think 15 was really the turning point. We, we went into a smaller winery, smaller tanks. We started looking for more vineyards. And just, you know, just chilling, relaxing, you know, just uh, let's see what it will give. And we found a lot of doors, amazing doors. You know, we have white wines out of 700 meters altitude in the limit with Vinga Verde region, like pure crunchy fruit, fresh. We have uh, some vineyards that are 85, 90 years old with grape varietals, never heard of, you know, again, this dimension, social dimension of grapes that were being sold to the co-op. And now it's one of our best wines. And uh, so I have my Malvasia that I do. It tends to, to get to really oxidized early. Uh, Malvasia, so I actually hyperoxidize it early. It's to get it completely dead and put it in the bottle dead. And I think it's, it's showing really beautiful now. I like uh, this. So I think our position in Doru, Doru is well established. And we are kind of a Doru in the extremities of Doru. We are in the... The other Dorus, you know, the, again, this expression of wine of consumption, you know, would be the worst grapes for port, means the beautiful grapes for nice table wines. How much is, of that is out there? Like, how many vineyards like that are there? I think a lot. The Doru is huge. It's infinite. But you need time. You need time because it's very relationship. You can't write a contract. There's no agreements. It's just, you know, you need to spend time there. You need to... It took a little bit of time, but it's really fun now. And we're also doing trials with future ports, some experimentals into, does it need to be like this port? Of course, it's going to be blocked by the commission, but <laughs> we'll get into that. <laughs> so the idea was that those vineyards were for commercial consumption or that they were for personal consumption? or The region would do wines to export. You need them concentrated. They can age, they can hold. But 
that's not what the farmer drinks. You're not going to drink a 20% alcohol. So you do vineyards for yourself, and they're normally mixed, whites and reds. So it's just a light wine, you know, fresh that you can drink after work, that you can have lunch with, and uh, actually more aligned to what people are drinking. This idea that there was these two categories of this uh, consumption wines that the farmer would drink, and there would be this celebration wines that you export. And I think as uh, more money in the medium class happened and better winemaking, it kind of merged. The consumption wine was actually the, the wine of celebration. And I think generally, overall, I think all of us feel, you know, this is a great wine, but I can't be drinking bottles of this. This wines of celebration, you know, more concentrated, they're amazing wines. You have a sip, it's like, ah, oh, what an experience. But then I can't do all the meal with this. I need a little bit of more freshness. And, and I think those wines of consumption always existed. You know, they're wines, they're a little bit simpler, you know, as simple as an oyster is so simple. Of course, it's simple. It's just, just an oyster. It's a, but it's amazing. It, and sometimes complexity, it's too heavy for our day-to-day lighter diet. And so... So that they tend to be older vines or younger vines? or The Turiga always existed, and uh, the Sausange, the Rorige, but it's it just the percentage was smaller. So like, say, Turiga Nacional, maybe you had 15%, 10%. The power grapes were there, too. They're important. They can give concentration. But they were a little percentage of a lot of other grapes, like Bastardo, Gonçal Pires. Bastardo is the same as Trousseau. So lighter grapes mixed with powerful grapes. So I think some of the grapes are the same, but the percentages of them as the new plantings became normal, like if you're looking to do more concentrated wines, you're, you're grabbing the ones that can perform better. So most of the young vineyards have much more of these grapes than the others. So when you go to the old vineyards, you're actually picking a mix of grapes that, is, that doesn't exist anymore. And do you find competition for these vineyard sources, or is it fairly wide open for you at this point? <laughs> Indoro is very small, so if you find a vineyard uh, 10 minutes after someone's knocking on you. <laughs> so we lost a lot of them already So with this, but it's, it's part of it. We really take it like this. You know, We take it smiling, and we take it fun, and it's part of the... If you were to take a lesson from each of the regions you're in and apply it to another region that you're in in Portugal, I mean, what would some of those be? When have lessons that you've learned in one place translated to another? It's a very good, um, good question. I'll say that Douro is the region that has managed to abroad make a clearer message what it is, even if that average message is not exactly what it is. But at least you know people get it. You know what is Sancerre, what is Bordeaux, what is you know, and people get it. And I think Alentejo is, is still far away from managing to pass that message. So I think that would be a good lesson for Alentejo. Uh, for Pico, I think this is kind of like if you were going to put an hotel today in a, a natural park, you wouldn't do the mistakes you've done 20 years ago. No big things, no, just keep it integrated, low impact. An architect said something incredible about Pico, said the reason why you still have these walls and you still have these grapes is because you had phylloxera and Padre Mildium. So it was like on this time capsule till today, or else someone would just bulldoze this. And, and so we had this problem dash opportunity that took us on this time capsule up to now, the responsibility of doing it now, you know, preserving it and just keeping it as it is. And, but always with this idea of function, it can't be museum. People need to make money out of it. The farmers and the wine, everyone needs to be working on it. And I think this would be the lesson. Antonio Massanita has a mindset for wine that includes both the history and the future, and he's working in Portugal. Thank you very much for being here today. <laughs> Thank you so much, Levi. Antonio Massanita of Fita Preta, Massanita Vino, and Azure Wine Company. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levi Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the 
crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening. For a while, you were experimenting with white wines made from red grapes, right? There was this moment of uh, imbalance in the Lentejo. There was more reds than whites, and there's a huge pressure on white fruit. And uh, there was not enough whites. And so the, the commission, the local commission, takes an exception rule of buying fruit from other regions, white fruit. It's stupid for everyone, because the farmers that actually made a good choice five years ago to plant whites, then they're... <laughs> Just uh, the rules change. I did a kind of a trial joke, you know, just to grab some red grapes and I'll do a white out of reds. And uh, so this is how I did my first one in 2008. And I did another one in 2010 and stopped doing it. To do a white out of reds is it's technique, you know, like uh, if you go to other areas, you know, restaurants or it's technique. It's you've had a dish and you say, this is beautiful, but you know, it's. You press it, you know, you either the presses are clean enough or you put charcoal to take all the color off and then you put it with leaves, you batonage it and it tastes a little bit between a white and a whiskey. And uh, it's easy to do, but then people are excited about it and you're like, I'm out of that. So my, my sales team was always saying, when are we doing it again? We're not. <laughs> Why? Because we're done with that. You know, that was fun when we did it and then now we're, we're off that road. <laughs>